All right, good afternoon. Good to see everybody. Welcome to Zoe Church. My name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome to the kids. Uh, I think it was last year. It might have been two years ago, but I remember. I always think about this every family service. Um, but one of my kids asked, are you preaching today or is it Pastor Eric? And I said, me. And they said, no. So uh, from that day forward, I, I vowed to always preach every family service. Uh, these, these sermons are going to be coming out of your nostrils. All right, so anyway, I'm kidding, but kind of not. Today we're in Mark, Mark 10. So if you want to grab your Bible and turn there, uh, Mark chapter 10, second book of the New Testament. Uh, we're going to be talking about something that's going to be maybe um, a little uncomfortable, I think, for some of us. It's a challenging text if you have ears to hear. It's, it's kind of the passage that if you're really hearing it, it'll cause you... T- to rethink some things. I think for, hopefully not for a lot of you, but I think for a lot of people, I think it kind of goes in one ear, out the other, kind of goes right over your head. I've heard this before, famous story. But there's something in here where I think if you're very serious about the truth, if you're serious about your faith, if you're serious about what's going to happen to you after you die, then this passage will kind of rattle you around a little bit. And I think that's, that's why this passage is important for us. Now, the reason why we're here, um, we were in Acts last week, we're in Mark today, and we're going to be in 1 Corinthians, I believe, next week. Um, but this is the second sermon in our new series, Faithful with More. And we talked about this, uh, we'll keep repeating this every week. At Zoe, our bread and butter is preaching through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, that's our thing. Um, but as we mentioned, we're beginning the process of looking for a more permanent church building, okay? And and what that entails is, and I'm not going to sugarcoat it, it, it entails raising money, okay? Buildings are expensive, and we're going to need to raise quite a bit of money in the millions of dollars uh, to be able to purchase a building that we can use, hopefully, for ministry, to be a part of this community, and to be a light for the gospel for years to come. So there are good reasons. We're going to talk about that. But it's going to take some fundraising, And we thought, okay, we could talk about what the Bible says about money, and we are going to do that. We're going to take this opportunity to do that. But we thought, you know, it needs to be in its context. We can't just ask you for money. We can't just say, okay, well, this is what the Bible says about money. Give us more money. We need to talk about why we're even doing this at all, why we're doing ministry, why we're here as a church. And it comes down to one word. It's stewardship. We are stewards of what God has given us, stewards of this ministry, stewards of the money that we have, stewards of everything, stewards of our own lives. We don't belong to ourselves even. In him we live and we move and we have our being. So what does it mean that God, who is the Lord, who owns everything, has entrusted to us what we have to use for his purposes, to use for his glory? Last week, we began by talking about how God is Lord of heaven and earth. And I wanted to start there because it might seem like we're asking you for stuff. We need your money. Uh, we need this church to have a building, et cetera, et cetera. God doesn't need anything. He doesn't need Zoe. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need any of us. He doesn't need our money. And if we can't raise the money, then we'll take that as a sign from God that this isn't what he has for us. If Zoe goes away, we know that the church of Jesus Christ will never go away. So maybe our local expression might not make it, but the church itself, even the gates of hell, can't prevail against it. He needs nothing. He is Lord, whether or not we believe in him, whether or not we follow him or not. This is his world. He is the main character, and we're just extras at best. 
Today, though, we're going to talk about what does it mean to follow him, though? I said last week, he doesn't need us, but he wants to have a relationship with us. What does that actually look like? So Mark chapter 10, okay, Jesus isn't just the Lord. What does it mean that he is our Lord? Mark 10, verse 17. Let me read, we'll pray, and then we'll get into it. Mark 10, 17. As he was setting out on his journey, that's Jesus, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and land with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. This is the word of God. Will you pray with me? Father, I believe that you are real and that your word is true. And I believe that your spirit, he is the only one who can convict our hearts. God, I know that some of us will harden our hearts or at least be tempted to harden our hearts at these words. But God, I pray that your spirit would prevent that from happening, that you would bring conviction, that you would bring softening, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. And I pray, God, that during this time, we would be able, that we would be able to see ourselves for who we really are and to see you for who you really are. God, this is for your glory, but it is for our good. God, if we do not build our house upon the rock, then the only person that gets hurt is ourselves. So, God, I pray that we would take these words to heart. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Why do some people walk away? I mean, we just read the text. We saw that disheartened and sorrowful, this rich young ruler walks away from Jesus. And we all know someone who's walked away from the faith. Right? Someone you grew up in church with, someone that you serve with, whatever it might be. But even beyond that, right? why do people walk away from good situations? Why do people, for example, walk away from their families? You get married, you make these vows, you, you buy a house, you move in together, you start building this life, you have two, three kids, maybe, and then 15 years down the line, one spouse decides, I'm not that happy here, I'm going to leave. I mean, the stats don't lie, what, 40% plus of marriages end in divorce? Why does that happen? It, it didn't happen overnight. So what was brewing in the heart 
of that family, of that person? Why do some children, when they turn 18, uh, do a 180? Or at least it seems that way. And they, they turn their back on everything their family stood for. I mean, in general, why do you think people do this? Why they walk away from things that presumably are good, are blessings that would help them? Do you know who Wilt Chamberlain is? Okay, I see a lot of nods. Okay, good, good. It's okay if you don't know who he is. I'm not going to talk about sports a lot. It's an illustration about the Bible. But Wilt was a famous basketball player from yesteryear. Wilt the Stilt, that's what they called him, because he was so tall. Okay, He was so much taller and more physically imposing and, and just so good at basketball compared to so many of his peers. He still holds the NBA record for most points scored in a single game. It was March 2nd, 1962. Some of you might have even watched this live. 60 years ago, over 60 years ago, he scored 100 points in a single basketball game. No one has even come within 10 points of that since then. 60 years. In terms of pure athletic superiority, he was a man among boys out there. And yet, very few people today, if you hear people debate on sports radio or you hear uh, different groups of friends getting together to talk about basketball, very few, maybe none, maybe no person on earth would contend that Will Chamberlain is the greatest basketball player of all time. He scored 100 points, and yet that's not even, he's not even in the conversation. His legacy doesn't make it. In fact, even though he ended up with two championships, his legacy is more one of failure to win, of not living up to his potential, of not being as great as he could have been. Now, why did this happen? It's, he walked away. He walked away. And you say, what do you mean he walked away? Will was a terrible free throw shooter. Not unlike Shaquille O'Neal, but he was a terrible free throw shooter and it held him back, especially in close games. So when he got to championship games, he was a liability. He couldn't make the easiest shot. You would foul him. He would miss. Game would be over. He would lose. But in his 100 point game, he actually shot almost 90%. He actually made almost 90% of his free throws. In fact, that season, I looked it up. It was his best free throw shooting season by far. He averaged over 50 points a game during that entire season. Unheard of numbers, unreal performance, and it wasn't a fluke. See, the reason why he played so well that season was, does anyone know? You don't have to shout it out. But the reason why is because he changed his free throw shooting strategy. Instead of shooting like a normal basketball player, he decided to shoot as, we used to say uh, on the playground in elementary school, as the grannies do. No offense to the grandmas here, but they would shoot granny style. He shot underhanded. It gave him a better touch. Uh, He was able to make so many more free throws. He was trying something new, and it was working. That whole season, he was unstoppable. But after that, he stopped. He walked away from what was working, what was winning. And the reason why is because he would rather lose than be embarrassed. He'd rather look cool as Wilt the Stilt than look like a granny. Again, no offense. I think grannies are cool. Why do we make the decisions we make? Why do we choose one thing over another? Why do we end up walking away sad from the things that we say on paper that we want? Will Chamberlain had every incentive in the world to keep shooting underhanded. More points, more wins, more championships, more uh, more everything, greater legacy. 
I mean, isn't that the point of being a pro athlete? If you asked him before the season what his goal was, it was to win uh, the NBA Finals. The key was right there, and then he discarded it. Why? Because how he looked in the moment was more important than how he looked in the history books, at least to him. He chose what was temporary over what was lasting. When it comes to our decisions, we're always weighing values. And when push comes to shove, our decisions, not our words, but our decisions, our choices, our actions, reveal the true allegiance of our heart. I mean, do you remember what Peter said on the night that Jesus was betrayed? Jesus said, you will all fall away. You're all going to walk away. And Peter said, no, maybe these 11 fools will walk away, but I never will. Even if I die, I will not deny you. A few hours later, Peter denied Jesus. Not once, not twice, but three times. Why? Because his life in the moment and that perceived danger was more important to him than his commitment to his quote-unquote Lord. Here's a question. Can you call Jesus Lord with any ounce of integrity if you don't do what he says? Can you call Jesus your Lord if, when push comes to shove, you decide to go your own way instead of what he clearly told you to to do? And this leads to our passage this afternoon. Mark is a book of action. Mark, in some ways, is the most readable of the Gospels. It's a book of decision. Mark doesn't focus as much on the teaching of Jesus, doesn't focus as much on the historical context like Luke does, or even the theological significance of who Jesus was like John does. Mark is focused mostly on what Jesus did and what other people did in response to him. Black and white, what did they do? When he said, follow me, did they come after him or did they not? doesn't matter what the reasons are necessarily. That's secondary. What did they do? Now, at this point in Mark, in chapter 10, Jesus is on a journey to Jerusalem. And what basically everyone around him didn't understand at the time was this would be the final journey for Jesus. And it makes sense, right? In Mark 10, he's at the height of his popularity. People think that he's the Messiah. And soon he's going to enter the city of David in just a few weeks with people shouting his name and Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He will be received as a king. And yet, not one week after this, he will be crucified as a criminal. But this is before then. And the question of this text is, why would you walk away from Jesus? Why would you do it? He has what you say you want. You want to go to heaven when you die. You want to be forgiven of the bad things you've done. You want to have meaning and purpose. Why would you walk away from Jesus? And maybe you're thinking, even if everyone in this room, these 200 other fools walk away, I would never. Three points this afternoon. We we don't have time to get into every single thing in this text. It's one of the, the richest stories in the Bible, but we'll do our best. First, the incident. Second, the issue. Third, the inverse kingdom, okay, where everything is backwards. So first, first, the incident. Let's just look at the event, okay, starting with verse 17. And as he he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this man is called the rich young ruler. Even though in this text, it doesn't say that. We know this because Matthew says that he was young, and Luke tells us that he was a ruler. That is, he was a a local leader in the community, in the synagogue. 
Even though he was young, he was someone that people looked up to. Mark just calls him a man. And if you read the Greek, he doesn't even say man. He just says a person, someone came up to him. So right away, I think some people might be like, well, okay, rich young ruler. I'm not rich. I'm not young. I'm not a man. I'm not a ruler. doesn't matter. For Mark, this could be any person. It's somebody who came up to him. This is literally for everyone. So this guy runs up and he kneels before Jesus, a sign of utmost respect. I've said this before, but now that I'm close to 40, it's hard for me to imagine kneeling before a 33-year-old. You know what I mean? But this is what he does. Jesus is young, but this man is humble. He recognizes something special in Jesus, and he knows that Jesus, if anyone has the answer to his questions, Jesus has it. So, good start. He asked Jesus about eternal life. There are a few people who could tell you about eternal life better than Jesus. Verse 18, And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And the answer is puzzling, even stumbling. Our confession as Christians is that Jesus is God. So what is Jesus saying here? Is he denying that he's the same as God? No, Jesus wants the rich young ruler to think. He asked him a question, what should I do? Before he even answers the question, he asked him another question. What, what do you, who do you think I am? Why do you call me good teacher? And in those days, this is not how you talked, okay? In case you thought that this is how everyone talked to, to every rabbi, good teacher, I have a question for you. Even people you respected, you wouldn't call them good because for the Jewish people, you were always trying to dance around connecting anyone with God. God was one of one. He, he was a class apart. You didn't call, you didn't even say his name. They called him Adonai, Lord, instead of saying his, his covenant name, Yahweh, because they wanted to revere him so much. God alone was good. So you don't call people good. You don't throw that word around willy-nilly, glibly. So Jesus says, why do you call me good? What are you saying exactly? Verse 19, Jesus goes on. He says, you know the commandments already. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. You hear that, kids? All of those except one are part of the Ten Commandments, the most basic laws, the most basic commandments that every child in Israel would have grown up hearing. This is morality 101. And the man hears this and he says, okay, this is like you telling me that, okay, I, I, I've been doing everything I can to lose weight. And you just said, have you tried exercising? Of course I did. Verse 20, and he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Rabbi, I've done these things. There has to be more than this. And if you read the list again, it's definitely possible that he has done these things. Jesus does not raise the bar super high. I mean, have you ever killed anybody? Uh, no, not to my recollection. Have you been a good son? I think so. And you could say, technically speaking, that he has kept these commandments, at least on the surface. There was nothing overtly wrong about his life. He had done what was supposed to be done. Now, stop here for a moment. Okay, I know, okay, I don't want to belabor this. I know that a lot of you know this story, though some of you might not. But I know a lot of Christians do know this story. But press pause for a second. Isn't this how it's supposed to work? Right? You do the right thing, and then you get the right reward. You follow the rules, you be a good person, and you get rewarded for your efforts. I mean, have you ever put money into a vending machine? 
this might be dating me a little bit because nowadays you can use your phone or you can use like a credit card at least. But I remember the days where you had to have not just a dollar bill, but a crisp dollar bill. You know what I'm talking about? If you bring a wrinkly dollar bill or a soggy dollar bill or one that's folded too much, you're not going to be able to get it into the machine. It'll reject you. So the required offering is a crisp George Washington dollar bill. And you got to bring it. And then you could get your Doritos or whatever, Gatorade. Sometimes, though, I remember I would bring the perfect dollar, at least the best dollar I could, the rich young ruler version of a dollar. I didn't even want to give it up, but I would stick it in the machine, and it would go into the machine, and then it wouldn't register that I put money in. So it basically ate my money. And I remember that this was frustrating. Nay, it was infuriating because I didn't have a lot of money. A dollar was a lot, but more than that, it was the principle of it. You do what's required, what more could they want? The rich young ruler isn't furious. I don't even think he's really that frustrated, but he is confused. He says, uh, I've already done these things, and I still feel like I'm missing something. What's going on here? Right? Any, any rabbi in Israel could have told me this. I could have read it myself. Aren't you supposed to be the good teacher? Now, some people here, they, they, they pick this guy apart. Some people say, look, obviously he must be a hypocrite. Oh, you never lied once? Come on. Did you exaggerate? I'm sure you have. Other people might say, look, didn't you hear Jesus' Sermon on the Mount? On the Sermon on the Mount, he said that if you have hatred in your brother, anger in your, uh, uh, toward your brother in your heart, then that might as well be murder. If you have lust in your heart, then that is adultery. So according to that standard, of course, he hasn't kept all the commandments. But Jesus doesn't press him on that. Look at verse 21. And Jesus looking at him, loved him. He's not frustrated. He's not exasperated. He doesn't say, how long do I have to put up with you idiots? He loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. The rich young ruler asked him, what must I do to inherit eternal life. Just give it to me straight. I'm a man of action. Tell me what to do and I'll do it. So Jesus gives him the one simple instruction that he has to give. He tells him the one thing to do. Do this and you will have what you ask for. I guarantee it. Sell everything you have and give the money away. You say you want to be a Christian. You say you want to go to heaven when you die and not hell. You say you want to be forgiven of all the bad things that you've done? Then sell everything you have. Sell your house. Sell it for however much it's worth, $500,000, and don't keep a penny of that. Give it to the poor. Sell your car. Sell your phone. Sell all the clothes that you have except for those that are on your back. Cash out your investments. Sell your jewelry. Sell your crypto even and your gold. Be honest. What would you do if I just came up here and said, this is what you have to do if you want to be a member of this church? Is this salvation by works? Is Jesus telling the rich young ruler he has to do something to earn his salvation? You got to be a a philanthropist. You got to give to charity. You got to jump through this hoop. Not exactly. Because notice what Mark says, verse 21. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. 
And what is love but doing what is best for another, even at cost to self? Saying something that's hard to hear, even if the other person isn't going to take it well. Jesus told him what this man needed to hear, not necessarily what he wanted to hear. All the commandments you have kept, you say, what about the first? You shall have no other gods before you. Jesus does not give this instruction because this is the requirement that we all have to meet. Everyone, you got to sell everything you have or else you can't be a Christian. That's not necessarily the case. We'll come back to that. Jesus is exposing this guy's heart. Where your treasure is, there your heart is. The man loved his stuff more than he loved anything else, and that includes God. And it became obvious, verse 22. Jesus was testing him, verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He's not happy about it, but he gets what Jesus was getting at. And he walks away. He went to the right person. He asked the right question. How can I have eternal life? Seems like it would be a slam dunk evangelism encounter. He got the right answer. Jesus told him what to do. This is from the mouth of the Christ himself. And then he makes the wrong choice. At least if you want eternal life. Jesus said in Luke 6, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, if you don't do what I tell you to do. Why call Jesus good teacher if you aren't going to listen to his good teaching? What's the point of orthodox theology? Oh, the hypostatic union, this, Jesus is 100% God. And if you believe Jesus is 100% God, then how come you don't do what he clearly says to do? What's the point of acknowledging these things, preaching these things, writing down that we officially uh, hold to this theology if... Whenever Jesus says in the Bible to do something that we don't feel like doing, we just say, no, I'm good. Or you have an excuse. Or it's just so hard for me, I don't think I can do it right now. Listen, this isn't about work salvation. This is actually about salvation. Why does the rich young ruler walk away? Not because he doesn't want to do something. Not because it's too hard. Those are secondary things. It's because when push comes to shove, for him, it's not a worthwhile trade. Salvation, eternal life, entrance into the kingdom of God. It's not worth giving up my stuff. He walked away because he didn't really want it. How does, how does that saying go? The things you own end up owning you. And this leads to the second point, the issue. What's the real issue here? It's not that you need to do something. It's not work salvation. You need to be more religious in order to get into heaven. That's not the case. It goes back to the beginning of the whole conversation. Rewind and play it back. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The issue, this entire conversation, it's about eternal life. Now, verse 23, the man is walking away. He's probably still in earshot, honestly. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. That guy's just walking away. He says, very hard for rich people to get into heaven. Jesus turns to look at the disciples. It says he looked around. The word in Greek there for that phrase is an important word in Mark. It's when he takes time to kind of take stock of a situation and explain what just happened, to talk about it, to, to debrief. His disciples, they're young. Okay, but they're not rich. They're not rulers. They might think, okay, well, sad to be that guy. 
But there's something here for every person who wants eternal life to hear. It's hard for rich people to be saved. It's difficult for rich people to be saved. How many people would self-identify as rich in this room? Now, I know, you know, there are rich people in the Bible, and people in church, especially in America, never fail to bring them up. You say, well, it's, ri- it's hard for rich people to be saved. They say, what about Abraham? Abraham was rich, and he was saved, so I'm good. Don't have to think about it. What, ab- what about Joseph of Arimathea? And I'm like, how do you even know who Joseph of Arimathea is? It's because he's a rich guy. Surely it's hard, but it's not impossible. Okay, I can be rich and I can be saved, obviously. I know that salvation is by grace through faith alone. We know that it's just a principle here. It's just for that guy. This is just a story for those who are like the rich young ruler, who are very materialistic. I know I shouldn't be greedy, but I'm not. So let's get this sermon over again. Come on, family service. Look at how the disciples respond. They aren't like, yeah, 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 I heard this before. I'm not rich. Moving on. They are, quote, amazed, unquote, at his words. And they aren't rich. They are amazed because this is blowing up their conception of who God is. For them, it was clear. If you're someone who is a good person, then God will bless you. I mean, why else are we praying and doing good things? Like before you travel, I know a lot of people, they pray for travel mercies or or that God would bless their trip. They don't pray, God, I pray that my trip will be the worst trip ever, that the plane will crash, that we'll get into a car accident, that they'll lose my luggage. You don't pray those things. You pray for God's blessing. And then when you get to wherever you're going and you have your stuff and you're safe, you say, thank God, hopefully. Thank you for blessing me. Thank you for helping me. I prayed for something good. You gave it to me. If God, uh, if you start a business and you ask God to bless it and you try to have integrity and, and then things work out, even though maybe you don't cut corners like everyone else, but God still provides for you, you still make money and make a profit. You say, thank God, God has blessed our business. I mean, what's the alternative to thinking this way? That God is random, doesn't matter what you do. That God is evil, that when you do good things, he repays you with something bad. It just makes sense. If God loves you, it'll show in real tangible ways. So many of us in our real day-to-day lives, actual day-to-day lives, we conflate God's blessing with having stuff and being prosperous. We're not health and wealth prosperity Christians, but we do believe that if God loves us, then he will give us the things that we want. Looking for that promotion at work or that new job. I'm praying uh, that God will provide this one, the house that, you know, I saw this house and it was the best house. I'm just praying that God will give it to me just makes sense. It's not hard to think this way. I never hear someone say, I'm just so blessed after they lost a lot in an investment or when the inevitable hailstorm destroys your roof, unless it's sarcastic. That just shows how deep it is in our psyche. But Jesus isn't being sarcastic. Verse 24, the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, you're not getting it. Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Not just difficult. He takes it a step further. And, and you can see how people want to kind of play mental gymnastics here. They say, well, a camel can't fit through the eye of a needle. So the eye of a needle must be the name of like a gate in Jerusalem that a camel could barely squeeze through because how could he, how could he say it's impossible? He's saying it's impossible. He literally says, with man, it is impossible. Just a few verses after this. 
Verse 26, they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? If a guy like the rich young ruler who is involved in church, who doesn't defraud people, who honors his parents, who is generally kind and cares about eternal life, who is humble enough to kneel before a 33-year-old rabbi who was a carpenter. If that guy can't be saved, then who can be saved? See, if you care at all about going to heaven when you die, if there's any fear of God in you, if you feel any guilt over what you've done in life, if you're someone who wants to make sure that you're going to go to the good place and not the bad place, if you want assurance, this story should shake you to your core because this guy walks away from eternal life. And then Jesus says, it's because it's impossible to have eternal life. Jesus says the rich young ruler is actually beyond saving. The disciples' question is a good one. If he is beyond saving, then who can be saved? Here's a question for you, though, to make it personal. Are you saved? I know you come to church. You're here. That's good. I'm not saying it's bad. I know that you maybe made a profession of faith, that you say that you believe in Jesus, and that is necessary. Maybe you've been baptized. Maybe you've been baptized here. But in your heart of hearts, do you know it? Are you saved? If there was like a natural disaster right now and you were killed, if you got in your car and you got in a car accident right after church, how sure are you that you would go to heaven? Or are there things where you're like, I'm not so sure. I need to kind of figure some things out. Because the truth is, if you get into your car and you drive away and you get into a car accident, you have a car. Jesus told the guy, sell everything. I see your phone. I remember in seminary, a guy said, nice watch to me. And I was like, take it off right away. I was like, ye judge me, right? You will be judged. But I felt that a little bit. He was kind of saying, why do you have such a nice watch? Timex, right? $20, that could be given to the poor. How do you know you're saved? According to this text, Jesus says, you got to give up everything. So how do you know that you're saved? What is salvation? Let me read to you from John 17. You don't have to turn there. John 17 is one of the most, one of the most unique chapters in the entire Bible because it's Jesus praying for an entire chapter. We don't usually hear kind of Jesus's inner thoughts, but we can hear it here. John 17 verse one, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give, and hear this, eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus says eternal life is not just a quantity of life. It's not just your life now, and then it doesn't end, it goes on longer. No, it's a different quality of life. The word in Greek the words in Greek for eternal life are Ionias Zoe. So we get the name for our church, Zoe. Eternal life. Life that goes on and on. Life that is different. A life that is spiritual in quality. It's not just about going to heaven. That's part of it. What it is, is the life that God gives. Life really with God. A relationship with him. 
So put it together. Last week I said God is Lord over everything. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't need you. He definitely doesn't need me. But he does want us. He wants to have a relationship with us. What does that look like? It's not that we crown him Lord as if he wasn't Lord already. It's that we make him the Lord of our lives. We acknowledge who he actually is. That he is God and we are not. God is Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't need anything. He didn't create us because he was lonely. He made us to have a relationship with him. We severed that. It's our sin that severed that relationship. It started in the garden when Eve disobeyed God's clear instruction, wanting to be like God herself to decide good and evil. She ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She gave some to Adam who also ate just as eagerly since separated them from God. And our sin does the same thing. We make the same choice not to eat of the fruit, but to want to be our own gods. Eternal life was right there for the taking. And they chose option B to do what we want to do to make the final call on everything that's important to us. I would rather go to hell than to have eternal life with God. Yes, I know God says I must forgive, but it's hard, you know? If I had to choose, I'm going to choose option B. I'd just rather not. And a lot of times we lie to ourselves and we don't think about the consequences of that action. I know the Bible says, do not love the world or the things of this world. But hey, most people do it. I mean, remember Joseph of Arimathea? He was rich. I'm not really loving the world, right? I'm just, I'm just a rich person who's into a lot of stuff, but I go to church on Sunday. Do not give a meeting together as is the habit of some. Yeah, yeah, I know. Go to church, but you know, like I, I have a lot of other things going on. It's not a rule, right? I'm saved by grace. Listen, okay, you don't have to do these things to be saved. Understand what I'm saying. You are saved by grace, but understand that the heart of sin is wanting something else, anything else more than God. The heart of sin is listening to something else, anything else instead of God. The heart of sin is about a choice to choose whatever it is that is not God. So if you don't want Jesus to be the Lord of your life, it doesn't change Jesus at all. But you have to understand the choice that you're making. You're choosing to stay in your sin. You don't want God. This is what Jesus was trying to show the rich young ruler, and I think he got the message. He was sad about it, but he still didn't change. Worldly sorrow versus godly sorrow. He did the opposite of repenting. He turned away from God even more. He walked away. See, the issue isn't that you can earn eternal life. Don't get me wrong. Please don't get me wrong. The issue is that you might not want it. Eternal life is life with God. Eternal life is about having a relationship, reconciliation with him. And remember who he is. He is Lord of heaven and earth. See, I think some of us, we want to have our cake and eat it too. We want eternal life and we want to sin. I think we want to get into the kingdom of God, but we still want to remain kings of our own lives. Jesus says, think about it. It doesn't work that way. And this leads to the last point, the inverse kingdom. The inverse kingdom, meaning the backwards kingdom. There was a basketball player named Rick Barry. I don't know if you heard of him before. Not as famous as Will Chamberlain. He was a former teammate of him. 
He wasn't as talented. He wasn't as physically gifted as Wilt was. And yet Rick is known for two things. Actually, three things. Okay, so the first is he kind of has an abrasive personality. He's not really a likable guy. He doesn't care what people think. And that probably is related to the other two things. Secondly, he is known for being an NBA champion. He took a bad team and they won a championship. He took the old San Francisco Warriors. So I know nowadays you think about the Warriors as a team that you all hate unless you're from the Bay and they win a lot, et cetera, et cetera. They were a joke of a franchise, but Rick Barry took them to the championship. They won in four games. He was MVP. And part of the reason why is because he was willing, the third thing, willing to do whatever it took to win. Rick Barry is known for being a guy who shot granny style his entire career. And he has one of the best free throw percentages of any player of all time. See, he traded coolness, being liked by people for a championship and a legacy. Verse 27, Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. The clues are there. Jesus is leading them to the edge of the water. All they have to do is drink. Rich people can't save themselves. He didn't say poor people can save themselves either. No one can save themselves. You need God. And that's what Jesus said. If you read carefully, verse 21, Jesus looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come Follow me. See, what did he actually lack? This is the last word in that sentence. Me, Jesus. All those things were just holding him back. His heart was so full of his possessions that he had no room for Jesus, so to speak. He had another king on the throne of his heart, and that guided his decisions. That changed the way that he lived. It informed all of his affections. And until he staged an insurrection against the false king of his possessions, he wouldn't be able to follow Jesus. No, actually, he wouldn't want to. You cannot serve two masters. You can't. Because when their commandments are in contradiction, you have to go one way or the other. John MacArthur He's no stranger to controversy. In fact, I, I kind of think he likes it, kind of keeps him young. He loves the fight a little bit. It, it invigorates him. But his first major controversy was called the Lordship Salvation Debate. Um, and it had to do with this book that he released called The Gospel According to Jesus, one of his first like books that put him on the map. And what he said was, you cannot be saved unless you repent of your sins and submit to Jesus as Lord. That was basically the thesis. You can't be saved unless you repent of your sins and submit to Jesus as Lord. And a bunch of Christians felt like he was preaching work salvation. They're saying it's just faith. You just got to believe in Jesus. You don't need to submit. You don't need to change your life. That's adding to the gospel. Just believe he died for you. Just sin. He saves you from your sin, right? But MacArthur said, look, it's not about doing works. It's not about the fruit necessarily. It's about recognizing who you're actually placing your faith in. And this was at the heart of MacArthur's argument. It's not that you make him the Lord or you act like he's the Lord or now you pretend that he's the Lord. No, he already is the Lord. So if you believe in him, but he's not the Lord, then there's some disconnect there in your belief. Your belief is wrong. You're believing in the wrong Jesus who is not God. If you don't want to acknowledge his lordship, how can you say in any real way that you have faith? 
so many people would rather go to heaven than hell. If you gave them only those two options. So many people would rather have some assurance in life that they are good people than not. So many people would rather be forgiven of the bad things they've done than have to think about justice and punishment. So they say, well, all I have to do is say I believe in Jesus, then sign me up. And I'll join this community of of nice people and maybe I'll, I'll serve a little bit and volunteer my time and that's that. Sing some some nice songs and be uplifted on a Sunday. And again, nothing wrong with those things. It's just not enough. Because the actual Jesus is the God who created everything, including you. See, when you say and you tell someone Jesus is Lord, the appropriate response is amen. But then what happens so often in church is Jesus, who is the Lord, says to do something and people just don't want to do it. I'm not saying that it's easy all the time, but people just don't want to do it. They're out. I can't believe in a God who would make me do that. I I can't go to heaven if that supervisor is going to be there. What do you think heaven's going to be like? A place where you can just do whatever you feel like doing? A place where you can just hate people? And a place where you can live for yourself? You can't believe in Jesus as Savior without believing in him as Lord, for he is one in the same. You can't say you want to be in the kingdom of God if you don't actually want God to be the king. Are you sure you want eternal life? That's the question. Verse 28, Peter, as Peter always does, starts talking. He says, see, we have left everything and followed you. And they did. Jesus does not rebuke him for this. They left their nets and their boats. They left their job. They they just wandered around Israel. They were persecuted. Peter, even though he stumbled many times, he was crucified upside down as a martyr. They left everything and they followed. Verse 29, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Listen to that list. House, family, including children, lands, property, the stuff that's passed down from generation to generation, your birthright. Jesus is asking for your life. Do you really want eternal life with God? Then you need to die to yourself. And we say, how dare he? How dare he ask this? Our lives are already forfeit. If God is the creator and he is Lord of heaven and earth, and he owns not only the cattle on a thousand hills, but he owns everything that he's made. We're already his to do what he wills with us. We have already turned away from him. He would be just to punish us. But Jesus instead offers a trade. He says, give up your house made of wood, which is going to be destroyed in a few years. Be willing to give up these relationships, which will end when you die, by the way. Give up this land that is mine to begin with. And you will have eternal life in the age to come, but also you'll have more in this life too. You will have a spiritual family. You will have treasure in heaven. You will have all, and you will have persecutions. It's not going to be a cakewalk, but it's not like you're giving up everything for nothing. You're giving up something 
for everything. See, God sent his son to live a life, the life we could never live and to die the death we deserve, to bear the power of hell uh, itself on the cross, to bear that way, to drink the cup of God's wrath so that if we simply come to him in faith, we can have eternal life, be completely forgiven, live forever with God, no pain, no tears, no crying, only joy. But to follow him requires us to die to who we used to be, to die to our sin. Jesus says, lose your life and you will find it. Some of us, we've been in church our whole life. We've kept all the commandments from our youth, but we're still lacking something. Our hearts are still tethered to this world and to other lords and to sin. And I'm afraid. I'm afraid for you and for me too, but I'm afraid for us. I'm afraid that when you face the choice, whenever you have this decision, should I live for God or should I live for something else, that every time you choose that something else, you're hardening your heart. You're taking another step away from God himself, your only hope. With man, it is impossible. With God, all things are possible. You have partial faith maybe, but partial faith is not enough. You believe that God is one. That's good, but even the demons believe that. See, the reformer said that faith has three parts. If it's going to be saving faith, there's knowledge. You got to know who God is. There's assent. You got to agree that it's true. And a lot of us just stop there. Yeah, of course, I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe Jesus is Lord. But the third thing is trust. You have to be willing. It's an act of the will to live like what he says is inviolable. Even if you're not sure about it, even if you don't really feel like doing it. That's what it means to truly confess that Jesus is Lord from the heart. You don't have to be perfect. Don't, don't get me wrong. But there needs to be a sense in which you understand that following Jesus means going where he goes, even if he doesn't tell you where the destination is going to be, because you trust him. Jesus says that when you sacrifice, you gain back even more. You got to trust that. It's not going to feel good at first to sell your house or whatever it might be. But he says, sacrifice what's now to receive what's better. This requires trust in him, that he will be good for his promises. You have to believe that the kingdom is backwards from everything the world teaches. That you give up your best life now for your best life later. Verse 31, many who are first will be last and the last first. You can go ahead, Jesus says, basically, and you can live for all the things the world lives for, the nicest house. You can live for all the security that that money will give you. You could live for the praise of man and try to rise the corporate ladder. You can go for power and prestige, and you could travel every mile of this fallen world. Go for it. But he says, if you are first here, you very well might be last in the age to come. But for those who have ears to hear, this world will be the closest to hell they ever get. There will be persecutions, yes. There will be sacrifice, yes. But it's temporary for eternal glory. Die now in order to live forever. Surrender now in order to win long term. It all comes down to this. What must we do to inherit eternal life? You have to want it. We'll close here. David Livingston was one of the greatest missionaries of all time. Um, however you want to measure that. He wasn't a perfect man by any means, but he dedicated his life to being a missionary on the African continent. He was from the UK, 
He's one of the first people from Europe to explore Africa. He was driven by this desire to end the overseas slave trade. He was an abolitionist. But when he died, actually, you know, it's kind of interesting. When he died, he, he loved Africa and the people there so much. He actually had his heart buried in Africa. And then they took his body back to England or Scotland or wherever. And then they buried his body. So his heart was still there. Now, it was hard work. Yeah, make no mistake. It took his entire life. He had to leave his, I mean, you think about what it means to be a missionary overseas, especially in those days. You don't have FaceTime. You can't talk to your loved ones. I mean, you're living among strangers. People are rejecting you left and right. There's actual physical danger. He gave everything up. Before he died, though, he said this. For my own part, I have never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office. People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Say rather, it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger, now and then with the foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life, may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. He said, it is hard, but let this only be for a moment. All of these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in and for us. I never made a sacrifice. End quote. I never made a sacrifice. You got to understand something. Jesus did not ask the rich young ruler to make a sacrifice. You say, what do you mean? He, he told him to sell everything. He didn't ask him to sacrifice and to lose. He asked him, do you want to win? He asked him, do you want to gain eternal life and even more in this age and in the age to come? All you have to do is want it. And he walked away. So what will you do? Then Jesus told his disciples, Matthew 16, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Either you give your life to Christ or you will lose it entirely. Either you will fall down on your face before the Lord of heaven and earth and acknowledge him as such, or you will live the rest of your short life as the Lord of your own life. And then you will face judgment. So what's it going to be? Is there something you know that you need to give up? Is there something that you're holding back? Is there a place in your heart that you're trying to keep Jesus out of? Maybe you could ask yourself the question, do I even want eternal life? Whatever it is, whatever you feel like you need to sacrifice, just understand, in reality, it's not actually a sacrifice. So I pray that you will have eyes to see that. Let's pray. Father, I pray, God, for all of us. And I pray for myself. I pray that we would not harden our hearts. I pray that we would not walk away sad, trading our eternal future for temporary whatever it might be. God, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see that it's not about us making you Lord, but that you are Lord. And I pray that we would humble ourselves before you. Praise in Christ's name. Amen.